0: Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with another guest. And today we have Allie, who is in charge at Shugach Farm in the Chickaloon, um, Alaska. She spent her early years in Ohio on her parents' farm shoveling manure, playing in the dirt, and observing her mother put up more tomatoes than anyone could eat in a lifetime. These formative years were not easy to wash off and helped nurture her intuitive passion for self sufficiency. Since purchasing land in Alaska in 2002, Ali and her husband Jed have put their hearts, souls, blood, and a few tears into creating a small scale off grid homestead and farm. In 2010, with Jed's encouragement, Ali began to lead the charge in farming after deciding to produce on a different scale and committing to farming, nutrition, making ferments, and putting up food full time. Chugach Farm has been in full operation since 2010, selling their goods at farmer's markets, restaurants, on and off CSAs, CSF, local customers, and now direct marketing through the new uh, Chugach Farm online store. And I'm assuming that CFF is farm, is community supported. um, Actually, you tell me.
1: Yeah, it's the community-supported ferments. So okay. similar, similar to a CSA program, that's what we do with our fermentation.
0: Very cool. Very cool. And so how does that work? They order off the website, do they get to the pick what they get, or do they just get something every single week or once a month?
1: Yeah, the way they, uh, you can do month by month or for the season, and it's a pint a week of a different ferment every week.
0: Very cool. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Yeah. So give us a little bit of an overview of your farming operation. It sounds like you do a lot there.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it is a lot. It's um, we're a small scale diversified farm um, and using organic beyond organic practices, although we're not certified at raising vegetables, chickens, ducks, and pigs, and the chickens and ducks are, are for eggs. Yep. We're on about less, less than an acre in the forest and um, we've cleared out, cleared out a little area kind of within the forest, but once you get up um, up in the mountains right above us, you can quickly see uh, that we're, we're, we're still pretty much right in it. And mm-hmm. we're, on an, we're on an esker on the side of basically between the Matanuska Glacier and the Chickaloon River and we grow um besides vegetables we also do medicinal and culinary herbs i've also been studying herbalism for uh over 20 years and we're all human powered off-grid no tractors the broad fork is our main tool and uh growing it growing at 61 degrees north with 20 hours of sunlight uh, in the midnight sun that's really the advantage we have here mm-hmm. in being able to grow so much on such a small piece of land.
0: So when you say 20 hours of daylight, what does that do for things like arugula in the midsummer?
1: <laughs> uh, actually, it's, it's insane. Sometimes you can seed a crop and uh, water it in, and we actually put IRT down to, um, to help germinate. And then mm-hmm. once it germinates, we pull it off, and we can have a crop within... 10 to 12 days. And after we go through and cut the first crop, we might have a second one within one week. Wow. Yeah. It's fast. The turnaround is, is really fast.
0: Yeah. But now the other side of that is that it's very, very cold and dark in the wintertime.
1: Yes. (laughs) And we actually, uh, you know, one of our, our structures, our main greenhouse is everything around all our structures are run off of wood heat but our main greenhouse is built earth ship style into the hill mm-hmm. with a wood stove that has radiant heat throughout all the underneath all of the growing beds in there
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that greenhouse we angled uh you know we have set basically for the the sun at the lowest day of the year which is uh november 17th the sun goes behind the mountain King mountain to the, to our South for good for a couple months. Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: So wait a minute. You don't have sun for a couple months.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, you've got like dusk, but we do not have direct light uh, between for about two months. And then for a little bit on the ends of uh, before and after um, you know, you'll get some sunlight every day. Wow.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's just hard to comprehend. So when we farmed in New York, we actually, the first year we rented some space from a friend over in Vermont and uh, he was on the north side of a mountain. And we didn't realize until we planted spinach and literally the sun went behind a mountain. And obviously in Vermont, it's very different, but it was incredible to me the difference between the spinach growing on our farm, which had you know direct sunlight all winter long, but this farm literally only had, had a couple hours less just because it was behind that mountain. Um, so I can't even imagine then, so talk to, during the winter time, you're probably not producing food. It's more all storage crops, correct?
1: Exactly. Yeah. And you know, it's not as cold as it used to be here. I mean, we used to have minus 30, minus 40 for mm. you know, some weeks in the winter. And we did have, you know, minus 20 Fahrenheit for probably six weeks, Mm-hmm. Or between zero and 20 below for six weeks last winter so yeah we are not growing during those times mm-hmm. but um but we do you know we can grow with this the our seed house and greenhouse and the hoop houses and and our high tunnel um we have been able to plant out as early at well we start growing in the greenhouse in march and then we plant out in the hoop houses by beginning of April. And I've still got a bunch of crops thriving right now. And it's beginning of October. So yeah, season's definitely a lot longer than it used to be. I mean, honestly, 10 years ago, we farmed, you know, June one through end of August, and that was the season.
0: Wow, that's a huge difference. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we've easily got an extra uh, three weeks on either end now. Wow. Okay.
0: So that means that you're doing an awful lot during the summer because like when we farmed in New York, we were a year round farm. So we farmed 12 months out of the year, which really spread out the workload. So that means you're really concentrating everything. Um, how do you handle that? Do you just have um, super organized or?
1: <laughs> I'd like to think I'm super organized. Uh, I am with certain things. I I definitely do a lot of planning in the winter. Mm-hmm and uh you know do all my my seed ordering in the in the winter and and the seed plan of what what's going to go where and the crop you know the crop rotation plan and the cover crop plan mm-hmm. and so that yeah that's all figured out in the winter and then i kind of have a day by day what happens for march april and may okay uh, as long as you know things things go well in terms of what's planted where or what's what starts i'm starting and um that sort of thing and then come you know june july august september that's pretty much usually i do that day by day and that kind of revolves more around um you know the markets and selling and that sort of thing but um i i try to plan as much as i can but like you know a lot of things get thrown your way that you know Mm -hmm. because we're not just farming we're also you know, hunting and fishing and making ferments and, um, and, and fixing the homestead and increasing the solar array and working on the wood stoves. You know, it's just a, mm-hmm. a bunch of different things.
0: Absolutely. So are there specific varieties for vegetables that you find work best in the short season or in the super cold?
1: Yeah, there are I mean, I think some of the interesting things about Alaska being high-altitude ag- agriculture are that the crops develop carbohydrates that are converted to sugars at higher rates, making the vegetables larger and sweeter when they're harvested here. Mm. And, and on it's so cool. The carrots can be up to eight times sweeter than those harvested in other climates.
0: Wow. And that's because of the altitude and the amount of daylight? Exactly. Okay, so a combination of the two. So there's just no way we can do that unless, okay, very interesting. Yeah, because I mean, like right now, actually, our carrots are super sweet because we've had several frosts now. and uh, But I'm trying to imagine eight times that, and that would literally be candy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) it's amazing.
0: Very
1: cool. But some of the other varieties that, you know, with so much sun, of course, uh, a lot of spinach varieties would bolt. Yeah. So we end up growing. Uh, it, well, it used to be Thai, now Avon. Uh, a lot of seeds from mm-hmm. Maine and, and New York. So these ones are from Fedco. Um, but that I can I can do succession plants of spinach throughout the entire summer and not have anything bolt.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, you know, in a typical summer, we also have cooler weather. So really uh you know like cabbage storage number four that's our biggest uh keeper that we can keep for about a year in the root cellar Mm. and uh other things that we've you know hawker eye turnips are are one of our favorites and you know a a lot of same varieties for broccoli cauliflower um, cabbage as as up in the east coast but um you know marathon broccoli yeah you can't and,
0: beat that one
1: yeah i i think the one of the for onions we definitely have to have a shorter day length so 100 day or less and that can be a challenge um so celery onions leeks. you know we just i start in the seed house at the wood stove in the middle of february so that they can be ready by now
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah wow
0: um so, with things get being planted and they get larger, um, do you still sell? For, how do you sell them? Do you sell by the pound? Do you have to split some things apart? Talk us through the, or does it just turn into ferments? Because it sounds the <laughs> ferments sound amazing.
1: Yeah, that's actually you made me think about a a cabbage or a, a cauliflower that I had at market once, and it was like seven pound cauliflower. Wow. And, yep. Yeah, and I and I w- it was like early on, you know, in my market years and i hadn't thought that you know to me i was like well this is amazing it's a seven seven mm-hmm. pound cauliflower but uh most of the customers were it was yeah they didn't want to pay for that exactly <laughs>
0: Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I remember when we had, I think it was uh, probably a three pound cauliflower and we thought we were amazing. And we started five bucks a pound as a $15 cauliflower. Yeah. And of course, yep. no one wanted to pay that. Yep. Um, we ended up floretting a lot of our cauliflower. And then of course it could sell very easily. Um, all right. So let's talk about the ferments because you've mentioned those a few times. The recipes, do you just develop them? Um, walk us through a little bit about like, what does that look like?
1: Yeah, I have developed them over the years. And, you know, I've been doing the the fer, the ferments for probably 15 years. And really, a lot of it is just kind of trial and error. And I get really excited about incorporating new ingredients. But uh, I have some staples, like my classic crowd is cabbage and caraway. And then my, you know, my kimchi is Napa cabbage from the Mm -hmm. early crop and, you know, peppers and onions and garlic and ginger and all that. And, um, and then I have a a carrot kraut and I do a carrot ginger ferment and a cauli kraut, which is cauliflower and peppers and turmeric and cumin and coriander. So I have some staples. And then within that, I really, uh, you know, it's all about Either what didn't what didn't sell that week, or what got too large, or just what extras there are, and it's been a fabulous way to utilize everything so that we have zero waste. you know, turn it into a product that then is valuable, is sellable for for a long time because of the storage. Um, and, yeah you know keep it in the keep them in the root cellar and uh yeah it's it's and increase the nutrition of that actual product.
0: Mm-hmm. So are you producing that under like a cottage food law or just in your home kitchen? Um how is Alaska set up for that?
1: Yeah, exactly. We right now we do all of that under the cottage food uh permit. And that was a challenge. Alaska has pretty good cottage food laws for most of the state, but the city of Anchorage uh, was really challenging to work with years ago, and I worked with the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund, uh, and they helped me kind of navigate that, and I worked with the city of Anchorage and got them to change all their laws. Awesome. Uh, because it was it was really challenging for farmers, and I wanted to mm-hmm. help encourage other people to you know be able to do something else with their extra produce and to learn those skills so so now it's pretty easy uh we apply for that permit and then we have certain you know a book that we file our ph and recipes and you know water content <laughs> and, and um so we've done that for a while but honestly our this our next step is to build a commercial kitchen and hopefully we're gonna in the next five years we'll have a commercial kitchen that we can do classes in and make all the same products, but then anyone can sell them instead of it having to be me.
0: Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, that makes so much easier. Okay, talk to me a little bit about the state of local food in Alaska, because I know you import so, so, so much.
1: Yeah, Alaska, you know, the last study that was done, Alaska still imports 95% of their food and it it really seems crazy. Um, you know, my guess is maybe it's more like eighty eighty five percent now. Uh, especially after COVID, it seems like everyone everyone's growing food. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, still the state still imports a ton of food. And interestingly enough, uh, Alaska still has the nation's highest percentage of beginning farmers with. Ooh. 46% having less than 10 years of experience and 50% of them being women.
0: That's awesome. There's so many new ones. Um, and women that are getting into it in Alaska. And why do you think that is?
1: I think that the word is out that, uh, you know, if, if you're, if you can deal with the winners and you're, and you're hardy enough that, uh, there's there's great soil around mm-hmm. and with the sunlight that it's just a great place to grow food. And <clears throat> I, you know, it, it's funny because Down Valley from us is, is where kind of the prized soils are in Palmer. You know, that's, that's mm-hmm. where uh, in the 1930s during the, the New Deal, they tried to bring a bunch of Midwesterners up from Missouri to uh, grow food and try to start the, uh, an agriculture business in Alaska. And it totally failed um, because they didn't have it set up right. But that's also the same place now where our biggest thriving farms are.
0: Gotcha. Yep. Yeah. So, okay. So then brand new farmers coming up. So that means the infrastructure needs to be there to support them. Um, how is getting things into Alaska? I know like I talked to a lot of the greenhouse purveyors, and they are saying they bring them up by the uh, container load.
1: Yeah. In, in terms of inputs and stuff that we can't get locally.
0: Yeah. And just like the greenhouses that they say they send so many to Alaska.
1: Yeah. And that was one of the huge, uh, with the NRCS high tunnel grants, everyone started getting those. So that, that, that went gangbusters up here. And you're correct in that we ship anything we can't get locally for inputs for the farm or feed for animals Or tunnels we will ship up on the barge
0: yep gotcha and then there's how far away is that from where your farm is
1: uh it's almost two hours you know hour hour and 45 minutes
2: Mm. okay
0: yeah it's really interesting because like um i was mentioning before we get on this call about the mushroom house that we're building right now and how it's almost done Well, I've literally had 20 trips to the hardware store in the last couple of weeks building this thing. And I'm just trying to imagine, you know, that aspect of, you know, if I need something or supply, just having to wait so long or just, and some of the stuff's about quite specialty. So I know it probably wouldn't be local. Um, but I'm sure like Amazon two day prime doesn't exist.
1: No. And so in in that sense, I am really organized. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I, and I, compound. So it's like, we'll do one order from Fortrell for amendments for uh, the farm and animals that we can't get locally. And we do that in February. And that's everything for a year. And that's one order on the barge. And then we'll do uh, one order, we actually get, you know, we make all our own animal feed and mm-hmm. mix everything, crack our grains and do all of that here. And we can get most of that locally. And that's in Delta so that's like four hours uh, northeast of us and, and they drive through when we meet them um, here in Chickaloon. And so, uh, but that's another, you know, big order that we do. And so we do like three or four of those and just mm-hmm. concentrate it to avoid those multiple trips anywhere. Because honestly, a lot of the quality stuff um, that we use, you can't get here so yeah.
2: yeah it's
0: like the farmers that are in like some of the island nations or and even not like new zealand just uh the challenges they have too
1: yeah but i would and, say an
0: exponential aspect of that just because of how cold and remote and it is tough getting things up there
1: yeah and you know that affects how you plan the farm out right like mm-hmm. we are i decided okay we're going to reduce our our inputs and and really it was mostly local fishbone meal that we are using mm-hmm. but uh you know, we're cover cropping more and composting more. And so we've really reduced what we need to bring in, um, to a small amount.
0: Okay. Now talk to us about the animal side of the operation. Cause you have pigs and I, and you said chickens and that sort of thing. Um, how do they fit into the overall farm
1: plan? Well, they are the fertility of the farm and, uh, you know, I, I'm i not sure that I thought about having all of them in the beginning and now I can't imagine not having them. <laughs> and uh, so the pigs have helped clear, mm. in, similar to like a Joel Salatin method on a really small scale.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, actually, he was so excited he came here, I convinced him to come to a visit, for a visit yeah. at our farm. And uh, it was really cool. He was, he was enamored by the forest and the potential with pigs.
2: <laughs> I can
0: imagine. Yes, yes. We, uh, we were super lucky years ago to have him visit our farm in New York. And uh, yeah, that was, that was fascinating just to get him out and get him to, to see what was going on. So, but um, yeah, I can imagine now because you're surrounded by that forest too.
1: Yeah. And so we've used, you know, we moved the pigs around. Um, different zones every year they have they've cleared uh, cottonwood trees you know we'll, we'll cut the trees and then mm-hmm. they'll work out the roots and everything so they've worked different zones and uh, so we have new growing areas because of them and and it's funny it's it's way more fertile and the soil is way deeper and uh, better tilt than any other zone that we hand dug or you mm. know used a tiller the first you know the first time it's it's amazing the work that they've done
0: now what is the forest comprised of up there
1: it's mostly spruce cottonwood and birch and then we have a lot of uh cranberry high bush cranberry and uh devil's club and a bunch of different um different roots but that's and and then you know alder and um that's mostly what's what's in the forest where they are
0: Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And so those are all softwoods, which means uh, when you, for firewood, that's what you're burning?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, birch is a hardwood when it's, when it's dry, but yeah, a lot of the spruce is already dead okay. and uh, dried and dead. And we've been burning that for a while. And that's... Um, yeah. So we'll, we'll burn the spruce um, and the birch and the cottonwood, we usually mill uh, we have a chainsaw mill and that's how we've basically created this whole homestead farm um, mm-hmm. with so little inputs and, and so little money is um, human power with a chainsaw mill.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are amazing. The amount of what you can get out of them.
1: But yeah. So so the pigs are down there, they're doing their thing, um, rooting around being the, you know, the tillers and manure spreaders. And then the chickens, uh, really the value of the chickens is uh, they have a really nice insulated coop uh, in the winter that they go into and we have a deep let- litter method and uh, no no additional heat, right? Because being off grid, <laughs> it's not easy to just plug in something in the coop. And so that's been one of our uh, goals over the years is to try to um, figure out how to, uh, you know, keep, just do more with less. And last winter it was minus 22 outside and it was 47 degrees in the chicken coop.
0: Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So, so for the animals then um, you're selling the, I'm assuming you're selling pork, you're selling the eggs and then all that fertility is just going back into building the fertility system for the farm.
1: Exactly. And, and mostly building compost and and then the chickens, of course, are going into zones after crops are pulled out, and or or going to be left in and silage tarped, and uh, and the ducks are really our slug patrol.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, and the slugs up there—do you have a big problem with slugs, or not anymore because of the ducks?
1: Uh, it's better because of the ducks, but we had a really we had a pretty wet wet year this this summer, so we, we still have. Quite a few um, slugs. We're definitely, we're definitely uh, breeding more ducks for that to take care of that, hopefully.
0: Yeah. Now, what other pests do you have up there?
1: Uh, voles.
0: <laughs> okay. And how do you manage those? Because that is, I think, everyone's nemesis, especially oh. in the wintertime.
1: Well, you know, I've tried all of your ideas. <laughs> okay. And, and other than going out and like setting traps uh, every day, <clears throat> which everything is not symmetrical here. I mean, that was, so it's, it's just a lot of different zones Mm. to go to, but we, we, that's been one thing we've done. Um, of course, keeping, you know, in certain zones between all the beds Mm -hmm. we have, um, like wood chips and, you know, so we don't have any, you know, there aren't any weeds. So we've really kept pests out that way has helped, but, um, uh I think it's time for a cat, honestly.
2: Mm. Yeah. I don't know
1: I don't know what else to do at this point.
0: Well, also too, the small terrier dogs can do a very good job of that as well. Mm. Because they'll actually dig. Well, voles are usually on the surface. Moles are the ones that are in the ground, but voles will they will, you know, dig a little bit. And the best thing about terriers is they'll just go go for them. Mm. So Yeah,
1: the voles just ate the tops off of literally every storage carrot that we're about to pull. <laughs> Oh yeah. That's (laughs) no fun. That is no fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Uh,
0: Can you get agrid three up there?
1: mm, I don't know.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing that, uh, so for like sweet potatoes and fall carrots and beets, we would just take the, um, you know, little square boxes or like little, um, uh, little like fishing like boxes and drill the like one or one and a half inch hole in either end and then just put three or four blocks of the agrid-3 bait in them. And then we would take a little white uh, irrigation flag and tape it to the box so we could see where they were in the field. Right. And then literally once a week, you just go and replace the bait. And uh, that works really, really well. You have to be careful because there's some that's OMRI listed and some that's not. I'm not right. sure what the difference is. Yeah. Um, but that agrid-3 is, it works really well. Hmm. We'll check it out okay so let 's talk a little bit more about management of the farm. Um, obviously, it sounds like there's a ton to be done. How do you keep track of everything and how do you make sure you vitalize the priorities every day
1: well i'm I'm a big list maker, and you know there's the the early season stuff I mentioned that we you know that I spend a lot of time organizing uh, mm-hmm. when it 's dark and cold and there 's a bunch of snow and then and then really it's uh you know, June is, we're planting, you know, the whole, well, the whole month of May, mid-May to mid-June, usually a month where it takes us to get planted. And then from then on, the daily stuff is really revolves around the weekly schedule, Tuesday, mm-hmm. Friday, harvests and pickups, or uh, pick up or harvest and deliveries. And, you know, so that means Monday's usually weeding and kind of assessing Plant health. Tuesday harvesting. Uh, Wednesday is either early season transplanting or, um, you know, pulling a bed and putting another greens crop in, or mowing something down and silage tarping it. And then later, later in the season or mid season, when you know Wednesdays turn into fermenting or making value-added products. Thursdays are usually building, fixing things, working on systems, Friday harvest again, you know, Saturday plants, Sunday, more of the same.
0: Mm -hmm. So now with the added light, do you feel like you work longer hours during the (laughs) summer because of that? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah definitely and yeah I've been known my husband has he is usually yelling at me outside to come in at 11 o'clock um, <laughs> yes I'm, I'm not as bad about that anymore I do try you know but I'm still working you know eight to eight every day pretty much
2: mm-hmm.
1: but uh yeah it is it's it's hard to not keep working when it's beautiful and light out and <laughs> yeah
0: Yeah, I could could see that. What would you say the hardest thing you've ever done as you've been building the farm has been?
1: Well, I thought about this. There are a lot of things, but I I think one of the biggest things is killing the pigs every year. Mm. And, you know, just, we know we raise them and care for them and love them and then then, um, dispatch them and, I think that's hard because it's this constant recognition of life and death, or this yin and yang, and how you have to have one for the other, and and it, it just brings up this um, reminder of what farming is. Whether you raise animals or vegetables, you're having an impact, and you're,
2: um,
1: <clears throat> you know, so it's it's an intense uh, it's it's an intense uh, responsibility, but. <laughs> Um, to be able to feed our community and ourselves for a whole year and have the benefits from the pigs. We, we honor that and we, we value it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Now, how many animals, how many pigs do you raise a year?
1: So we do four a year and it might be more at some point, but that's kind of what our space uh, Mm -hmm. um, does, what we can do here. And, And then we do the whole process here we mm-hmm. do everything. So we're just actually this past weekend, we just had a, our crew out and um, <clears throat> we work together to, to kill the pigs and, um, and have and hang the first day. And then we, and then we teach people how to do all the cuts and then we have a grinder set up and then we do bone broth and render lard and uh, do cased sausage, and we're curing hams and hocks right now, and <clears throat> just made scrapple.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> okay, so it's from it's the full it's the full um, cycle, and which is awesome. Um, now, now I'm assuming you have a place to do that processing in.
1: We do, yeah we we have we've kind of developed all of um, the space and the tools and everything here here at the farm, but. That's kind of the, you, you either have to do one or the other, right, in, in a lot of states. But um, in Alaska, you either have it all farm and people buy pig shares or mm-hmm. you have to take it to the um, slaughterhouse, which we don't um, subscribe to. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, probably going to be defunded by the state anyway.
0: Wow, that's crazy. Um, yeah. That's sad too, because then that means another way that you are know, no longer, the food security in Alaska keeps dropping.
1: Yeah, it's it's challenging. Pretty much everyone, most people um, butcher all their own animals because
2: of it.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. I remember we used to do our own pigs, and we just didn't have the setup. And so, you know, staying out there on a you know 30 something degree day with some wind on your back is no fun way. So <laughs> <laughs> we and the other thing is because we were such a big vegetable farm, as any covered space was set up for vegetables. Mm-hmm. And then to try to obviously start processing in them that meant that you have to run into the food safety aspect of then cleaning everything very thoroughly and stuff. Yep. So we we just ended up X um, you know, doing that off farm and paying someone to do it. But <laughs> I mean, it was challenging, a couple hour drive um, and, you know, all the things that, yeah, that you just don't, you don't know uh, how they're being cared for in those last hours of their life. You spent the entire time, um, you know, making sure they live a good life and then the last couple hours can be not great. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, who you've learned from over the years, who have been your mentors.
1: Well you know it's funny I was listening to a podcast um and Elliot Coleman was speaking the other day and and uh, Elliot's been here too, and I've hung out with him and oh, uh, cool. and he is definitely from like an early age he was one of my um, one of my mentors, and I think that's because we had a similar you know we, we both kind of were drawn to the mountains and you know mm-hmm. I came to Alaska to be a mountain guide and um, kind of for that wild nature and to build a cabin off grid and, you know, and then farming kind of came after and, and uh, he had a similar, similar path and, um, and his was also a result of Helen and Scott Nearing in their book, uh, Living the Good Life. And mm-hmm. that really stuck with me. I read that book, I think in high school
2: mm-hmm. and
1: it changed my world. <clears throat> And, you know, from, there are a lot of people, but uh, of course, Joel Salatin has has been a role model for me with a lot of his systems. And then more locally, <clears throat> uh, Tom and Susie up at Calypso Farm in Esther, Alaska, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, Emily Garrity down at Twitter Creek Gardens in Homer, Alaska. And we've all kind of collaborated on systems, and well, how do we do this a little differently, and and uh, make it work? And um, I think all of those people combined have given me a lot of inspiration for, you know, the challenges that are a little different for us being off grid, like with a, you know, how do you run your fan system for your greenhouses and stuff like that.
2: Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm, absolutely um and do you use dc fans or just low voltage or how do you do that
1: yeah they're dc fans and all of the fans are you know as close as possible to the actual structure because then you don't have that line loss for the, Mm -hmm. the run so uh and then they have a solar panel right there so as soon as the sun hits the panel the fans turn on
0: aha gotcha If you could go back and reset your farm, let's say starting from the beginning, what would be the main thing that you would
1: change? Probably symmetry with bed size and length instead Mm of, you know, we have some original raised uh, permanent beds and then some terraced beds on a hill. And then we finally went to the the symmetry of, you know, 30 inch wide um, beds, 85 feet long with uh, you know, a foot or 16 inch walkway. So probably that, that symmetry um, mm-hmm. would have saved time and energy um, even though our land doesn't necessarily um, allow all of that. And then the other thing would probably be introduction of small scale tools a little sooner like a wheel hoe and the tilter. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so you said 85 foot long for your beds, right? Yep. And why that specific length?
1: uh that's just the space we had on like in the on the property you know 100 would have been great but it kind of dropped off and then we have a pond down there so
0: Mm -hmm. gotcha Yeah. yeah i'm always just interested in how people set up their farms differently with that i'd like to stop here and take a quick break in a minute we'll be back with allie Hey Thriving Farmers, have you checked us out on YouTube lately? We have a bunch of new content there, including a few rants by me. I uh, wanna tell you, you don't wanna miss them. Um, I actually go rant about you know some of the problems I see in our space and some of the challenges I see farmers uh, facing, so go check that out. We've got instructional videos over there as well, talk about setting up our new farm here in Ohio and all the steps we're going to do that, as well as just tutorials and tips on best practices for all sorts of things on the farm. So go ahead, check over at Growing Farmers on YouTube and see the new content we put together for you. Hey, folks, we are back with Allie. Um, Allie, talk to us a little bit about the labor um, aspect on your farm. Um, I know your husband Jed farms somewhat with you, but kind of what is his role?
1: Yeah, uh, his role, I think that, you know, it's taken us some years to figure out what each of us wanted to do and, 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 uh, and what we're, we're both best at, but you know, he definitely focuses more on systems and, you know, he sets up the water system in the spring and takes it down in the fall. And he does a lot with the solar system and things don't work. He fixes that and Adds panels and sets up, set up a solar system for the well and does the electric fence for the pigs and the solar pond pump. And he's big with the, the pigs, the butchery of the, of the pigs. He's really good with, mm. uh, with that aspect. And then some marketing and social media. Uh, and then he helps with day to day taking care of the animals and, and making the animal food.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. So, and does he work, um, what's it, does he work off farm as well?
1: He does, but it's, uh, it's two months in the spring he's gone and then a month in the summer. So there are blocks of time when I do everything.
2: Oh,
0: wow. Yeah. So do you have any other part-time help?
1: You know, it's, it changes year to year. We, ha- we had an apprenticeship program for eight years. That was awesome. And that didn't work out this year because of COVID.
2: Mm. Uh,
1: And we'd like to be able to hire someone else. But, you know, being so small, it's, you know, I mean, it's the same story, I think, with a lot of farms. You just, a lot of times you end up doing it all yourself. But we're trying to figure out an arrangement to have a little more um, full-time help. Uh, Mm -hmm. But, you know, I I had help one day a week this year for for one harvest day. And usually it's, you know, help maybe two days a week. Mm -hmm. And you know, my, you know, kind of what I focus on then is the planning, seeding, transplanting, harvesting, washing, marketing, selling, delivering.
2: (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 So let's talk a little bit about that marketing. Uh, Where do you sell your products?
1: Well, let's talk about, so the last 10 years, I went to Anchorage, uh, so that's an hour and 40-some, 45 minutes away, to the Spenard Farmers Market, and I started at that market. It was the only cooperative market at the time when I was getting into it, and it was affordable, it was Mm. in a good location, and that actually did really well for quite a while until a bunch of other markets popped up around town. And there's a quite, quite a bit more competition, but, um, so I would go in and I had a few CSA shares. I would drop off along the way, go to actually drop off orders at the small plane airport to go to remote villages Oh wow! and then go to market sell market, deliver to my restaurants and then come home.
0: That must've been a long day.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So that was, that exhausted me. And, um, you know, as much as COVID has had its challenges, it's, it was a good transition for us this year to our new online, uh, store.
2: Mm.
0: Okay. So now what percentage of the product is going through that?
1: Well, so this year, both of my markets, uh, were canceled this year and I lost all my restaurants. So, uh, you know, sales were already down 50% in the beginning of the year, basically. Mm. So we transitioned to all online and, um, and then that was two days a week, Tuesdays and Fridays, uh, would get, you know, I worked with the company barn to door. Okay. Are you familiar with them?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've looked at some of their stuff.
1: Yeah. So, you know, it has its benefits and drawbacks, probably like all of them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They all have a few quirks.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'd actually like to know more about like that aspect from from you and people you talk to, too. And uh, it would be good to know what folks think of all those different platforms.
2: Yeah,
0: that actually one thing we thought about is doing like a mini summit all around like moving your farm online and basically like do deep dives into every single program and uh, look at some best practices and stuff because there is so many new options out there. You just don't know where to turn. Um, Yeah, there's like a dozen different options now for farmers. Some, you know, obviously very specific for farmers, but some more mainstream that can be adapted to farmers. So what do you choose? That's a great, great question.
1: Yeah that that would be great. And and honestly I really like the transition. It was mellower. It was I think it has a lot of potential. You know, if I could mm-hmm. add back in the restaurants next year I'd probably be and you know 20 more customers would probably be good. But mm-hmm. um <clears throat> so I I like the the fact that I'm only harvesting what's already sold. Yeah. And yeah, so that's, that's where we're at right now, you know, still have a couple more weeks, one or two more weeks, and then we'll be done uh, with that for the year.
0: Okay. And then after that, do you, uh, do you sell it all or cause did you just cut off?
1: It'll be infrequent, you know, I'll still have kombucha and the ferments and some value added stuff, but it'll be um, maybe around holidays or um, yeah, not, not, not too much more cause I actually transition into doing some avalanche forecaster work in the winter soon after that.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. That sounds incredibly interesting. So not to go completely off topic because that's not farming at all, but <laughs> um, does that involve just a lot of hiking around up in the, um, or is it long range spotting?
1: Yeah. It's uh, a lot of backcountry skiing, hiking up into the mountains and looking at the snow. Okay. Yep.
0: Wow. So another thing that you said you sell is transplants. Talk to us about those.
1: So the transplants, and that's not a big part of the business. It it could be, it's always been, uh, I think if we opened up the farm to have a plant sale, it would work better. Um, you know, transporting transplants is challenging. So that's kept, kept that side of the business kind of small, but, um, we do all soil block starts and we make wooden trays so we'll go out and we'll cut a spruce tree down mill it up and then make uh, wooden trays from that tree and then um in the greenhouse early spring we'll have a setup where we'll make the soil blocks and and then usually i would take all the the extra uh starts to market and sell them i just put them on the store this year and it's cool to see people's response to uh, buying starts made in soil blocks versus plastic Mm -hmm. pots and having them come back to me and say wow i've never had a celery plant that's done this well or i've never had a broccoli plant that did this well you know it's pretty cool
0: yeah what are favorite varieties that folks like
1: Uh, Well, most of them like the things that they don't want to start that early in the winter.
0: (laughs) Gotcha. So leeks, uh, onions, tomatoes, that kind of
1: thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But they also, you know, Alaskans love their broccoli, cauliflower, kale, cabbage. Mm -hmm. Uh, So those are also big hits.
0: Gotcha. And p- promotion. So how have you developed your customer base? I mean, it sounds like you're at the farmer's market, but when you moved to the online, did you have to do a bunch of scrambling or how did that transition go?
1: Yeah, no, I totally scrambled. <laughs> uh, I was actually hoping that it would be this easy transition of, hey, all my customers from market, I'm not doing it. This is what I'm doing instead. And turns out some people can change their, choose to change their habits, but a lot of people struggle mm. with it and so we're still working on that and there were also issues with the platform i was using which weren't always i wasn't always aware of at the time like oh the reminder emails didn't go out
2: oh the order
1: but you didn't tell me and i had stuff like that that happened a bunch so that was super frustrating Mm -hmm. um you know my husband jed he does the uh you know facebook and instagram And I think it kind of peters out towards the end of the season, but he's a really good photographer. And so I think he captures, you know, people that way. But um, I would say that that is a really challenging aspect of um, living rural like we do. And honestly, when I ask new customers how they found out about us, almost everyone says, you know, mouth mouth, mouth to mouth, someone told me about you.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's not
1: actually facebook or you know once in a while i saw something on instagram but it's pretty interesting mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm,
0: yeah so let's talk about beginning farmers because you've been farming now for a while in a very harsh and unforgiving climate what would you say one of the big the f- mistakes beginning farmers make is
1: the one of the mistakes i've seen time and time again is folks not knowing seasonal growing techniques so they don't know when to put their crops out and they put them out too early and they freeze mm-hmm. and, or they grow, grow the wrong varieties of crops. Uh, you know, like a spinach, you know, someone says my spinach keeps bolting and it's cause you can't grow most spinach up here in the summer. You have, you know, cause of the, yeah. the light. So those sorts of things that seem like inherent knowledge of you need to be connected with another farmer who has grown up here and can share that knowledge.
2: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. A mentor, farmer, or like a, yeah. a coach. Yeah. yeah. And so what do you just say that they should avoid their first year?
1: I mean, I know maybe it's not practical, but I think if you can avoid feeling pressure to have big production and instead focus on soil health and fertility mm-hmm. and weed management, you know, easy to say now looking back, right? Yeah. <laughs> but... Um, it just makes such a difference. And I think once you get going growing crops, it's hard to take that time or pull something out of, out of production to, mm-hmm. you know, to deal with it. but boy, is it worth it?
0: Yeah, actually that's kind of the approach we've taken with our new farm is that literally we've got a couple dozen pounds of spinach and beans and carrots and beets, which yeah, we're eating, but some of them are going to go to waste just because, we just did trial this year with the understanding that we weren't going to plan on selling any of it. And just so we could learn the soils. Yep. And, uh, awesome. I learned, I've got incredibly horrible creeping Charlie out there. I mean mm-hmm. like just bad, which is good to know that now because it isn't a, uh, it's a fall annual weed. So that knows that in the fall next year that I have to be very careful about how I manage it. But, um, yeah, it's good to know that now and not when I'm trying to do two to three acres of fall
1: crops. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So, um, but yeah, and and it's, it's tough to to know that I'm going to be tilling under some of that crop and it's not going to be eaten, but it's, uh, also you're right. Don't want to overwhelm yourself because otherwise you're just running ragged.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I've been doing a lot more experimenting with, uh, you know, I don't have flail mower, but, uh, I use my weed whacker Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, uh, And so after, say, an arugula crop, I'll weed whack it, silage tarp it. And in in the heat of summer, oh, man, it was totally gone in 12 days. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then, you know, and it was amazing. And so I did a lot more of that. Maybe with less sales this year, I had more time to experiment with that. But the soil is in such better shape. So, yeah, that's really cool. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. If you could pick one, what would be your favorite farming tool?
1: (laughs) uh i'd say my chainsaw
0: <laughs> okay
1: okay and i know that that's not like direct well it is kind of directly related reason being it's enabled us to live simply and create an amazing homestead and farm with a with few inputs yeah and and we've you know cleared the trees to build the farm we've used it to mill wood to build our seed house and our greenhouse and our sauna that we use to dry herbs and cure veggies and you know cure potatoes and onions and uh built the hoop houses and fencing and um so that's that's probably the one thing that we could not we couldn't do mm-hmm. without here.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no I uh I totally get that. I actually own a bandsaw mill and uh I still because we don't have an unlimited supply of wood, we and t- we don't tend to use it as much. Um, but it's still a very valuable resource. Now, I guess the big question is: Are you a Husqvarna or steel?
1: Oh, steel for sure.
0: Okay. Well, you know, <laughs> I'm glad we could continue this conversation. Otherwise, I might have to ditch this uh, recording. <laughs>
1: awesome.
0: Um, yeah, I actually um, I remember because when I was growing up, uh, we had this little old home light, and eventually that died, and so I wanted to go get one and. I went up to talk to our the guys that we used to buy lumber off of, and they took me over to their shed and showed me this beautiful, gleaming line of steel chainsaws, mm. and uh, they said, "Yep, you just buy steel. That's all it is." And so that's what we <laughs> that's that's where I am now. But I, I've definitely had some of the rivalry between even me and my my siblings. They've gone and bought Husqvarnas, and I'm just you know,
1: oh that's funny,
0: floored. <laughs> yeah, but uh, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, especially with yours, which is you're doing a lot of different things and uh, because the supplies and getting those things are hard, being able to do some of your own resources is incredibly important and wood is such an important resource.
1: Yeah. And I mean, otherwise, you know, the broad fork and the, you know, Mm -hmm. wheel hoe are our favorites too, but yeah.
0: Wheel hoes are incredible. Yeah. So would you say that now is the best time to be starting to farm?
1: I think, yeah. I mean, I think any time is a good time to start a farm, you know, kind of depends on what your priorities are and what the land is like and do you have to produce or can you, um, take some time and learn to understand what that, the land is like and the soil needs and, um, but yeah, in general, sure. Yeah, now is a good time to start a farm. I think the, the biggest reason I support that and I, I believe that is I think that we all need to continue to connect with the land better and understand mm-hmm. the interconnectedness of life and where our food comes from. So that is a great way to do it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where can people find out more about you?
1: They can go to chugachfarm.com that's c h u g a c h farm.com and also find us on Facebook and Instagram.
0: And you want to spell that for folks I know that people may have challenge with that.
1: C H U G A C H farm.
0: All right, awesome. And is there anything you wish I had asked that I didn't?
1: Maybe about our Our uh, food preservation system, the root cellar.
0: Oh yeah. You mentioned that and I didn't. Yes. Tell us about the root cellar.
1: So the root cellar is really what enables us to run the business and put up a year's worth of food uh, without any energy and hands down the most valuable structure we have here. And if built properly, you know, ours is north-facing and mm-hmm. well insulated, mostly with earth. And we will put, uh, you know, cabbage, carrots, potatoes, our beets, um, apples, and, and a lot of our jars and ferments in there in the back room. And then we have a front room that's a little drier that okay. we can put uh, onions and garlic for a bit. And then onions and garlic move into the entry of the cabin. Mm-hmm. but yeah the root how- cellar the the root cellar is amazing because uh it stays about 32 degrees in the winter and 40 in the summer and it's always about 90 95 humidity wow
0: okay so how many square feet
1: uh not big enough <laughs> <laughs> it's uh it seemed huge when we built it and we could have doubled it it's uh the front room's about uh six by six and the back room is about 10 by 12.
0: Okay. And so that's basically just you dug a hole in the ground. Um, it's a cement lined or is it dirt floor?
1: Yeah. So it's an earth floor and a uh, we poured a concrete footer and then we build a block wall on that. And then we milled a bunch of wood. And framed up basically the roof. And then we poured a four and a half inch thick ceiling and then put our vent pipes up through it Mm. and then um, covered it with earth. And if you know the book Root Cellaring by Mike and Nancy Bubel, it's Mm -hmm. basically just like that.
0: Yeah. I'm actually looking at it right here on the shelf. Um, (laughs) Yes. It's a great book. I remember reading that multiple times. Okay. So do you have active ventilation or is it just whatever, or is it passive?
1: Yeah. So uh, it's just passive, but if you have, if you do your vents properly, so one's flush with the ceiling Mm -hmm. in one corner and the other one comes down, you know, two inches from the ground you can put your hands up there and it's just moving
0: oh yeah absolutely yeah it's it's self-moving so then in the summer 40 degrees wow do you have permafrost up there
1: Mm, you know it's pretty much gone okay We, we do have a lot of frost heaving um and a lot of movement with earthquakes and stuff but um yeah not so much uh permafrost anymore
0: gotcha Yeah. Yeah. I remember uh, Paul and Sandy, who are my mentors up in New York, they used to be able to run their root cellar through the winter time. And then it came to the point where they had to put in a huge cooling system just because uh, it warmed up so much and got so much more variable.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah. That might. So last summer was extraordinarily hot and dry mm -hmm. and we had a lot of fires. It was a really wild summer for Alaska and we had trouble with the root cellar, so um, getting too warm. So we might have to incorporate uh, a heat pump um, mm-hmm. for cooling from, that runs off of a solar panel at some point. And we'll just have, you know, this year we put a lot more earth on top of it and did really well. So we'll see.
0: Gotcha. Very cool. Well, Allie, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you uh, coming on and chatting all about your farm and uh, just the... Farming in Alaska. It's so cool. I'm glad I learned um, so much today. And uh, the root cellar is really cool. Um, I just wish we could do that down here, but it's uh, just too warm for that.
1: (laughs)
2: So
0: we are thinking of putting in a climate battery in our greenhouse. So we'll let you know how that goes.
1: Yeah, that'd be cool.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, you have a great rest of your day. And again, thanks for coming on.
1: Okay. Thank you so much, Michael.
0: Looking to start or grow your farm business? You need a compelling farm plan that you can share with investors, convince your significant other with, or just to give yourself peace of mind. We have created a new program called the Start Your Farm Intensive. In it, you'll learn how to develop your farm idea to make sure you take all the factors into consideration for your context and your climate. You'll learn how to craft a one-page business plan that helps clearly define your target, customer, and lay out the necessary characteristics of your business. You will understand the three financial documents that every farm needs to fill out to make sure you are making money. And we'll give you all that as templates, too, so you have the templates to fill out for your farm business. We'll also go through funding. So where to go for funding for the various stages and parts of your business. Starting a farm is hard. Starting a farm without a proven plan is almost impossible. Join us today. Go to growingfarmers.com forward slash start for more information. Now, what did past students have to say? Corey says, the exercises and spreadsheets helped me make the learning process easier and more real. Jenna says, I gained the support system and resources I needed for when I'm ready for the next step. And finally, the worksheets make you think out every aspect of the business step by step. Go ahead, join us today, growingfarmers.com forward slash start. Hey, Thriving Farmers, next week on the podcast, we have Marissa from Whipple Farms, South Carolina. And Marissa is a new farmer and they bought new land, 40 acres of pretty much dense overgrown forest, And they've been developing it and uh, with uh, five or six different enterprises, everything from pigs to goats. Um, They've got chickens and ducks. And uh, so she shares her amazing energy of building the farm. They do some agritourism. They do on-farm camper stays. So some great ways to supplement your farm income and uh, just love her passion and everything she's got going on. You're going to enjoy my interview next week with Marissa.